Hello, Rich Bowles here, and thank you for downloading this week's episode of the Dad Mindset Show. Today, I chat with Professor Scott Hershevitz on the benefits of doing philosophy with your kids. Scott, a professor of law and a professor of philosophy at the University of Michigan, has written the book Nasty, Brutish and Short to help parents and kids go on adventures in philosophy and tackle some of life's biggest questions together. Father of two boys, Scott began telling his students a story about something his first son had done and asked them how he should respond. His boys surprised him with the frequency with which they raised the sort of questions that he discussed with his students in class. It turns out that kids are naturally very good at philosophy. In this interview, Scott invites us parents to appreciate this wonderful and fun aspect of parenting that we might otherwise miss. Your kids are naturally interested in philosophy and are great at asking the kind of questions that, if you're open to it, can help your kids become deep thinkers and help you recapture some of the wonder and appreciation for the world that you may have forgotten. I hope you enjoy this chat with Scott. Scott Hershevitz, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. And whereabouts are you right now? I am in my attic in Ann Arbor. Ah, oh, nice. And uh, I take it the uh, the weather's getting a bit cooler right now? You know, we had our first snow of the year yesterday, and I'm, I'm a little bit in denial. So, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, the, the winter is long here, and we're just, just at the start. Yeah. And uh, I want to just first of all say... You know, well done on the book. It's absolutely fantastic. I am so glad to hear you enjoyed it. <laughs> what did uh, your sons, Hank and Rex, think about the book? So they've gone through stages with the book. When I first got the contract to write it, they were super excited and they were arguing over who was going to be in more stories. And um, and I think that uh, th- they still think it's cool. They're glad. Uh, they're glad it exists. I think that you know, I took them on a trip to London when the book came out in the UK, so uh, they got to have some fun experiences. But also, they're a little bit older now, so I think like um, you know, they, they they quibble sometimes with some of the details in the stories, whether my memory is better than theirs. But they also uh, they also maybe just had enough of it. You know, I uh, they they don't want to. They don't want to talk philosophy or hear me talk about it anymore. <laughs> Actually, can you just describe what it is that you do for a day job, Scott? Yeah, so I'm a philosopher of law. Um, uh, I teach at the law school at the University of Michigan, and I also have an appointment in the philosophy department. And I um, I teach philosophy for law students. So I'm interested in questions like, are we obligated to obey the law? And if so, why? And When's it okay to break the law? What's civil disobedience? Questions like that. Yeah. And so um, my understanding from reading the book is that the inspiration for the book came from a lot of the questions that you had with your boys growing up. Can you tell us a bit about that, Scott? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, like, there's a link between um, this book and my teaching. So early on, I um, uh, after Rex was born, he's the older one, You know, maybe around the time he could start to talk, I just sort of realized I was coming into my class and I was telling my students stories about Rex, things he'd done or questions he'd asked. So like if the topic of the day was, say, the purposes of punishment, I might come in and tell my class a story about something crazy that Rex had done and ask them how we how they thought I should respond. And my students loved it. You know, like kids are crazy and people love talking about the cute things that they do. And they'd get into the conversation 
And within a few minutes, we'd be having a conversation about the purposes of punishment. Think about like, what should a parent be trying to accomplish when a kid's misbehaved? And, uh, and that was a way of opening up like then the kinds of questions that I want to ask them as future lawyers. You know, what should say the state be trying to accomplish when it thinks about punishing people? And how is that similar or different to what a parent ought to be trying to accomplish? But really, for me, this sort of um, project of of realizing that my kids raised so many interesting philosophical questions um, came out of the utility of talking about them in, in my class. The sort of, um, you know, the, the book was was first written in my lecture notes. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like it was quite a, a journey as well for you actually coming to, to realize that. Was there a specific point when you were like, oh, right. And now you approached the questions and the conversations with, with your kids in a different way? So I think that um, I realized really early on, actually, that um, that my kids were doing things that were philosophically interesting. So I um, remember Rex, before even before he learned to talk, we had tried to teach him a little bit of sign language. So we'd show him the sign for like more when he ran out of food in the hopes that when he wanted more food, he'd learn to make that sign. And... Uh, and one day he did finally, after like weeks and weeks of us making like this little sign when we were offering him more food. One day he looked at me when he was out of blueberries and he made the sign. And I thought that was super cool. And then a few hours later, um, he um, he heard like this truck outside of our window. And we went over to look at the truck outside the window. And then the truck drove away and he turned to me and he made the sign. He went more. And I remember like just being blown away by this because um, just just thinking about the way that his mind was working, that he'd sort of um, either realized that it was an all-purpose word or was trying it out to see where it would work. Because you could imagine that like we'd only ever done the word in the context of food, that maybe he would think it would only work there. And so, um, you know, like these questions of language acquisition, they're questions that psychologists and linguists are interested in their questions of philosophers are interested in too. And so I just got interested in this kid as a kind of like philosophical object. But then once he could really talk, he was just straightforwardly asking philosophical questions. So when he was four, one night at dinner, he asked, um, he said, I wonder whether I'm dreaming my entire life. And, uh, you know, people have been asking that questions for thousands of years. And one of the, one of the benefits of being a philosopher is I know that, and I've read a lot of, um, I read of a lot of philosophy about what people call dream skepticism, the possibility that maybe um, the world isn't what it seems because we're, we're having a dream or we live in the matrix or something like that. And, uh, and, you know, just over and over again, both boys surprised me with the frequency with which they would raise the kind of questions I discuss with my students. Yeah. And I, I think that was really great because you have all the backstories and the, the, the depth of sort of history uh, at your fingertips as well. And so as you're talking through the books, uh, sorry, as you're talking through the audiobook, it, it was really brilliant to hear, you know, when your son talks about the, the, the color shift um, argument yeah. about, hey, hey, w- was that actually you that said to your mom? Yeah, that, that was the first philosophical puzzle I remember as a little kid is when I was in uh, what we call kindergarten, I would have been five years old. Um, I sat there one day um, uh, puzzled because I thought, oh, what if what if other people see colors differently than I do? What if um, they see red the way I see blue and I see blue the way they see red? And I ran to ask my mother who taught a preschool class down the hall and she just couldn't wrap her head around uh, around what I was asking. 
But I discovered years later when I was sitting in a, a, a lecture in a philosophy class that was about this problem that lots of people, when they get to that philosophy class, remember having this puzzle when they were kids. Yeah, yeah, I definitely <laughs> related to that as well. So, I mean, you actually said that all kids are born philosophers. So what, what stage and what, what point do you think we sort of knock that out of them? So um, I, think it's, I think actually you can sort of see how it works if you think about why kids are sort of philosophers and naturally good at philosophy. They arrive in the world and they don't understand really anything about it. So they're constantly puzzled by it and they're trying to puzzle things out. They're trying to think things through. And um, I think that's a major component of it. And I think the second real advantage they have over adults sometimes as philosophers is that they're not afraid of um, asking questions or seeming ignorant or especially not afraid of seeming silly. I like to say silly is the business that they're in. And, um, you know, so when they have a question, they just put it out in the world. And when they have an idea, when they have like they've thought of an argument or an answer to their question, they just put that out in the world, too. And I think that these are two skills that one really needs as a philosopher. You need to you need to be puzzled about things. Um, to notice what's puzzling. And then you need to just try out ideas and arguments. And, uh, you know, the, the research suggests that kids are spontaneously interested in philosophical questions between the ages of roughly three and eight. Um, they're just, and, and that makes sense. They're trying to make sense of the world at that age. And they don't know what grownups take for granted. They don't know what the standard explanations of things are. It starts to slow down around nine or 12. And I think really in adolescence is when kids become a little more closed down. And I think two things have happened there. One is they've started to, um, they've started to learn what the standard explanations of things are. And they've also started to realize that grownups don't spend time on some sorts of questions like, am I dreaming my entire life? Um, and then the second thing that's happening is they're really becoming more socially aware um, and they're trying to manage other people's perceptions of them. And I think they do become risk averse about seeming like they don't know what they're talking about or seeming silly. And so I think it's probably a lot still going on in their head, but it's not coming out of them as much. Yeah, that fundamental need to fit in and not being seen as a as an outlier or a risk to the tribe, so to speak. Yeah, now, uh, your book actually breaks down into a, a number of sections as well. So when you talk about making sense of the world, it, it actually starts with sort of making sense of morality, doesn't it? And then sort of, so could you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, Scott? yeah. so the, the book comes in three parts. It's, it's making sense of morality, making sense of ourselves, which deals with questions about identity, like sex and gender and race, and then making sense of the world. And I started with the making sense of morality section because I feel like that's what a lot of the early stage of parenting is. So um, there's chapters there about revenge and punishment. And one of my favorite conversations ever with our younger son, Hank, when uh, one day um, he was telling me that a kid had called him a mean name at school. Um, and then the teacher came to talk to, to Hank. And I was like, why did she talk to you? Why didn't she talk to the other kid? And he wouldn't quite tell me what happened. But it was clear that he had done something mean back when this kid called him uh, a bad name. And um and it really got me thinking about revenge. You know, I asked him, I was like, Hank, did you think it was okay to do something mean to Caden because he called you a floofer doofer? And Hank said, um, Hank said, yes, he called me a floofer doofer as if it was the most obvious <laughs> thing in the world that you would strike back or take revenge when you'd been suffered, when you'd suffered such a serious insult. And, uh, you know, that got me thinking of like, what are we doing when we take revenge? What are we trying to accomplish? 
Um, is there anything that's good about it? And if there are good things about it, could we get them in some other way, whether we're thinking about kids or we're thinking about adults that have been wronged? But, uh, you know, started with these questions about morality, just because I feel like when you're trying to integrate a little kid into a social world, that's a lot of what you're dealing with is what are their rights? What are you what are you going to punish them for? How are you going to punish them? What are you trying to accomplish when you punish them? Yeah, that, it got real deep real quick, but you did it in a way that was such uh, an engageable way. So, I mean, I, I can't recommend parents enough to actually just read the book to give yourself a bit of a... I don't know, a pep talk on, on some ideas to, to approach like these conversations. Well, I, hope of, I hope part of what will make it fun for people is that, um, you know, uh, we're putting our, we're putting our own failures out there. Uh, <laughs> my wife and I. Uh, you know, the punishment chapter starts with our first and uh, extraordinarily unsuccessful attempt to punish Rex, to give him a timeout. Um, it turned out just to be a novelty for him. He enjoyed it and he wanted to do, he wanted to do the thing that had earned him a timeout again. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's, it's not, um, a book that's written, you know, to say, look, I figured out the way to do this and here it is. Um, it's, it's a book to, to sort of share uh, our difficulties and confusion and, and then try and use philosophy to make some, some progress in thinking about what we want to accomplish. Yeah. Say, yeah. But I, I think that's the, the heart of it, isn't it, Scott? It's, it's a shared journey with your kids. It's not this top-down thing of, hey, you're an empty vessel. We need to fill you up with knowledge about philosophy. It's, hey, I don't have these answers either. Here's a range of thoughts that people have, you know, and, yeah. and you've got a, a, you know, a vast arsenal of that information at hand. But, but you know, us, us other parents probably don't. But we can at least say, hey, we just don't know the answer to that. Let's, let's have a think about it and, and, you know, look at it from different perspectives. And that's the yeah. the. I think there's really something charming about doing philosophy with kids. And I use that phrase very intentionally. I don't think of myself as teaching my kids philosophy. Um, I think of myself as doing philosophy with them, like we're exploring together. And I think the charming thing about a, a philosophical conversation with kids is that they can be collaborative, that, you know, if they ask you a question about science um, or, you know, or a question about like how to do something practical, chances are, you know, the answer. Um, certainly better than they do. And so you teach them the answer. But if they ask you, um, you know, what's what's the like, what are we here for? Right. Or, um, you know, what's what's the what's the point of our lives? You know, like chances are you don't really know the answer to that either. Maybe, maybe you thought about it. Maybe you have some ideas, but you're you're um, on the same journey of exploration that they are. And so um, uh, you, you can you can engage in the inquiry with them and recognizing that they actually, you know, will have some wisdom um, and maybe some creativity that you've lost as an adult and that you can learn some something from talking to them. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was your point around uh, God, because you have a whole section on, you know, religion and, and God. And it's it just really, re <laughs> I guess, um, refreshing to, to have a, a totally fresh spin on it where someone doesn't have one one idea or another. But it's like, here's a bunch of questions. Let's let's work it through. Yeah. So the, you know, people sometimes ask me, oh, when have your kids changed your views? And I always um, point them to the story, which is in the last chapter, which is about God, um, where Rex really kind of um, uh, upended my understanding of myself and my relationship to religion. He was uh, four years old and he um, he went to the Jewish Community Center preschool. So he learned a lot of stories about God there. And uh, and one day I was cooking dinner and he asked me, is God real? And I said, well, what do you think? And he said, I think that for real, God is pretend. 
and for pretend God is real. And I was just kind of struck by that. It kind of came out that crisp. And I was like, what, what do you mean? And he said, I think that God isn't real, but when we pretend he is. And I've been thinking about that ever since he said it. Um, and it kind of helped me solve a mystery about myself. Like I participate in um, like a lot of different religious rituals. We celebrate Jewish holidays. We take our kids to synagogue. Rex is studying for his bar mitzvah. But I don't think of myself as a believer in God. And I've always had a kind of question of like, why is it that I do these things, even if I don't have the the beliefs that are supposed to underwrite them? And Rex helped me think of it differently, helped me to, to see that um, you can pretend, right? And in the same way that pretending enriches um, kids' lives, it can enrich grown-up lives too, that sort of like pretending that there's a God when I'm participating in these rituals in these synagogues gives me a framework for lots of events in the world that I want to celebrate and connection to community. Um, and so now I feel completely at peace with this sort of thing that I used to find confusing that, uh, that I do these things and I value them, even though I don't, I don't believe the stories that we tell when we do them. Yeah. Well, I've got to say thanks as well, because you, you actually described other elements as well about talking about, um, you know, something being outside of time and outside of space as well. And these are questions that I'd never had framed in that manner as well. So it was really, really, really nice to go through. Yeah. And, uh, and maybe that's an occasion for me to say, like, it's it's a book about kids, Um but it's not a book for kids, right? <laughs> it's a Trojan um, I, horse. I say, in the, I say in the introduction, yeah, the, the kids are my Trojan horse. Like what I want to do is I want to help grownups. I, well, I want to, I, I, two ambitions for the book. One is I, I want to invite um, parents, grandparents, teachers, anybody that interacts with kids to appreciate this really um, uh, wonderful and fun aspect of children that I think a lot of people miss. That your kids are naturally interested in philosophy, that they're asking great questions, um, that they're trying to answer them and they're really wonderful to engage and you can learn a lot from engaging them and maybe support them, right, to continue um, as deep thinkers. So that's like one ambition. The second ambition is we were all those kids once. And I <laughs> want to to some extent. <laughs> yeah, just recapture some of their wonder of the world and sort of, you know, like, as you said, like, maybe you haven't thought yet about um, about God and God's relationship to time as God, you know, in time and existing at every second, or does God stand outside of time? And, you know, I hope the book is full of just lots of ideas um, and questions that will make people think, huh, I, I want to stop and think about that for a minute. It's There's a real puzzle there. Yeah, well, it, it was quite timely because literally the conversation in the car yesterday between the two girls was, ah, oh, so what if you like, you know, where, whereabouts is heaven? And they were trying to actually uh -huh. place it in the world. Like, what if you, yeah. what if it was flipped and like, it's actually under the ground and you dug, 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 and all of a sudden heaven's down there, like middle earth. And, yeah. and I was like, this is gold. This is awesome. But, but that, that idea that, you know, you know, you get back to the matrix and what if we're outside, it's, it's a completely different framework. And I love sort of nurturing those questions or at least like nudging them along a little bit and just holding space for them, which I think is, is part of the magic. Yeah. And I think that one way you can encourage your kids is, um, to sort of keep up those kinds of inquiries is just to let them know that you value it and you're interested in what they have to say um, and, uh, you know, to be like, Hey, tell me more about that idea. Like, or, or, you know, to add your own question, like, do, do you think heaven is a, is a place? Is it like, you know, um, 
it's, it's like on a map or uh, you, you know, um, like on a coordinate system of this universe or like someplace else entirely, like um, to let them know that you're interested in what they have to say about these things that they're puzzling or pondering yeah. through. But, but the, the key being to take them seriously. So to not, because I think it's very easy and, and I, I definitely put my hand up to this to have a little bit of, you know, I, I, it's a bit embarrassing to say like when, when you're sort of kidding them on and they can tell that you're kidding them on. And I think that's yeah. totally disingenuous. And I think the thing is to just be totally upfront. That's a great idea. I haven't thought about it like that. And then just yeah. asking questions as if they're a peer, because at the end of the day, they are a peer in 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 many ways. In, yeah. Because we there's so much we just don't know. I'm of, I'm of two minds about that. So one is I think absolutely um, you should have serious conversations with your kids and be seriously interested in their um, their arguments and um, and recognize that you might be able to learn from them. Um, uh, at the same time I do, I, I'm silly with my kids constantly. And actually I think of philosophy as a kind of play it's play with ideas. <laughs> and, um, and a lot of it I think is actually best done in a kind of silly register. So, um, you know, I used to play, um, I used to play, uh, this game with, uh, with Rex where, um, I would tell him I was, I was super excited about the, about, um, about our dinner guests and he would say who's coming to dinner and I would say nobody um and you know we're just playing this little like this little word game where I was treating nobody like a somebody um (laughs) and um I you know uh you know what do you think nobody will be wearing like just you know like and like over the years I've probably forgotten most of them just like a sort of like a million different little um like silly kind of like game silly kind of word games yeah playing with words yeah playing with words playing with ideas and i and i do think like my like as they get older they're losing patience for some of that but i do (laughs) think that sometimes you can really get them to stop and think about something when you when you're just playful in that way yeah yeah absolutely i think play is the key word isn't it yeah I mean, um, what are some of the other ideas like i mean just as a, a starter pack like some of the questions that you said su- you suggest parents can ask to actually to to open up a space and, and play with these ideas so i think there's a few different ways to approach it so the first thing i suggest that people do is just listen to their kids curiosities and complaints and um you know i think complaints are actually an especially rich resource of philosophical ideas. So like kids like to say that things are unfair, right? And so, you know, I want to like, oh, like, you know, uh, what, is it, what does it mean to say something's unfair? Or what would make this fair, right? Like push it back on them, right? And often you'll find that like, you know, they'll, they'll say, oh, like me getting what I want would make things fair. But you can point out the problems maybe on that occasion with them getting what they want and sort of like lead them, interrogate them in the way that, like I might interrogate a law student in my classroom. Or sometimes actually I, I've made progress in my house by saying, hey, I agree with you. That I think that that is unfair, but but I wonder like, is it my job to make it fair? Right? Like, um, you know, is, is a parent supposed to make sure that everything comes out exactly fair? Um, <laughs> you know, is there ever unfairness that works out in your favor? And should I be undoing, should I be undoing that? Um, so I think that like listening to complaints, listening to their curiosities, um, you know, as far as like instigating philosophical conversations on your own, 
I think there's a couple different ways to do it. One is just if you are wondering about something, then I think um, maybe the kind of thing you would talk to your spouse about or talk to your friends about, try talking to your kids about it too. See what they have to think and tell them like, I'm confused about this. That's going to get them interested. Um, the second thing that works really well is there's a website I like to recommend called Teaching Children Philosophy, um, which is run by the Prindle Institute for Ethics. And it's got um, teaching uh, modules for lots of very common picture books, probably picture books, um, many picture books that you already know about or own or could pick up at the library. And it'll have a little primer, a paragraph about what the philosophy issues are that are raised in that book for adults. But then it'll also have a list of discussion questions you can ask kids as you read. And especially like, you know, you know, you're, you're a parent, you end up reading the same books over and over and over again. And so by the time you're on like the 12th reading, you might be able to make it more fun for yourself by hopping on this website beforehand and just grabbing a question or two that you can ask a kid as you read. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. We'll definitely put a link to that at the end. Now, um, I had a few questions jumping sideways a bit. You did talk about how Alas, I'm not a good parent. I'm an awesome parent in relation to rocking out to revenge songs. Um, You know, I think that was after the Floofa Doofa conversation. But I I did want to know, how did the conversation go um, when, well, I think it was Hank asked you about what sex machines were when you were listening to James Brown. You know, I I, I think I don't know if I have, I don't know if I can find the passage in in the book fast enough um, to read it because I I think that... uh, you know, you, you've uh, you, you've cut off. Um, you've cut off. Ah, so uh, it says, alas, I'm not a good parent. I'm an awesome parent. So we spent the next 20 minutes. This is after our conversation about Hank taking revenge, rocking out to revenge song, starting with James Brown's 1973 funk fantasia, The Payback, um, which includes the lyrics, revenge, I'm mad, got to get back, need some payback. Um, but, th- but then the next paragraph says, actually, I'm not that cool, at least not in real time. So I didn't play James Brown or teach Hank that two wrongs don't make a right. And I regret the Brown book, the Brown bit, because it took me years to learn that kids think his lyrics are hilarious, um, which they are. Um, But then I said, you just have to be careful which song you play, um, uh, because then you you might have to replicate the conversation that Hank and I had about what a what a sex machine is. Um, And, uh, you know, I I think I. um, I. uh, I think that it was probably a pretty trying to rem- I'm trying to remember we were in the car. I remember the day it happened. I don't remember exactly uh, what I said. Um, but I think that um, I think I said it's a person who really likes sex or something like that. <laughs> um, and he had only the dimmest understanding of what that was or what it could mean. But he was fine with that explanation. It's it's one of the things that uh, will, will, will get you out of a lot of trouble with kids is their interest in things doesn't always run that deep. So sometimes they're going to stick with you and keep questioning, but you can often get away with a simple answer. <laughs> Great. And um, you, you obviously had a lot of mentors um, that sort of inspired you to get into philosophy. And like, what sticks out in your mind for some of your favorite mentors? Mm. I, I guess for in the, in, in, through the lens of being a father, or at least being, you know, um, guiding and, and nurturing young humans. Yeah, um, you know, so I talk about a philosopher named Jules Coleman in the book, um, who was a mentor of mine when I was a law student at Yale, and um, he. We had this conversation once, which I report um, in the book, where um, 
he, I asked him a question and he gave me an answer and I said, well, my view is, and he cut me off and he told me that I was too young to have views. Um, he said, you can have questions, you can have ideas, but you shouldn't be um, imagining that you've done enough thinking or that you're far enough along in your thinking to have things you call your views. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that, actually, that um, to see yourself as a person with questions and curiosities rather than as a person with answers, even if you're entertaining answers, um, because the longer you stay open minded about something, um, the easier it is to change your mind if you come across better evidence. Um, and the more likely you are to um, ask good questions and um, and to, to give every to give all the different possibilities a fair hearing. So I think that was a really um, important lesson that I learned is to be a, a questioner rather than an answer giver as often uh, as often as you can. Um, the the other you know I, I also talk about um, a philosopher named uh, Clark Wolf, who was my very first philosophy professor. And I don't say this in the book, but I think that one of the things that made him uh, such a really astounding teacher um, connects up with what I want people to to learn about interacting with kids is I, I can remember in my in, in the days of my first philosophy class having many ideas that were in retrospect terrible and, you know, excitedly telling him about them. But he never told me that they were terrible. He never sort of treated them dismissively. He always just, you know, took them seriously and asked me questions about them. And I realized in retrospect, that involved a lot of restraint on his part, right? That he could see immediately that I was off on some dead end, but he didn't say to me, hey, that's not going to work and here's why. And I think that there's a real lesson for parenting and just teaching in general in that way. When somebody's excited about something, don't shut them down um, and, uh, and, and help them to think things through. Don't tell them how to think. Yeah. Yeah. Reminds me of Ken Robinson talking about, you know, when you, when you tread on my dreams, tread carefully, you uh -huh. know, sort of, um, yeah. Um, one of the points you raise as well is around swearing and the importance of swearing. Can yeah. you talk to that a little bit, Scott? Yeah, so that chapter had a funny genesis. My editor was telling me that I said fuck too much. Uh, she kept editing it out of a draft <laughs> of chapters that I would send her. And then one day I had a long car ride and I was thinking about this and I thought, I'm going to write a chapter about, about bad language. I'm going to write a chapter about the word fuck. It's kind of, I mean, I adore my editor, but it's kind of a little bit of a fuck you in response for like the, the way you've been editing me. But the chapter is also very much grounded in like my kids' experiences of starting to learn that there are bad words and then learn what they are. And they're trying to navigate the circumstances in which it's okay to say them and the circumstances in which it's not. And, and I realized actually as a parent, my view is really nuanced too. It's, um, it's not, I don't want to shut it down. I think that swearing is a skill and it's a valuable skill that, um, you know, helps you establish intimate relationships and navigate social situations. And there's actually all sorts of evidence. Psychologists have studied swearing that when you swear, it's easier to endure difficult experiences than when you don't. And they've got theories about the way our brains work and why that's true. So it turned out to be not just, you know, a way of frustrating my editor, but also really kind of like a rich and interesting area of philosophy of just when is it okay why would it ever be wrong to say words? 
Um, and, uh, and if it's sometimes wrong to say words, when would it be okay to say these kinds of words? And then, so the chapter starts with this sort of, sort of like fun and frivolous question and then winds its way to, to the, to the idea that, well, swears are one thing, but slurs are different. And maybe there are some words that are really off limits and thinking through, um, uh, why it is that, um, slurs can be so hurtful and maybe are things we shouldn't say at all. Yeah. And that was the thing that I really liked because I hadn't actually thought about it that way before. It, it, I, I think as humans, we, we really tend to be binary and we bundle things all together over here or all together over here. And, and just realizing that there was a, a very distinct difference between swearing and, and slurs and, uh, yeah. and one that I hadn't drawn before. And, and I think that, that got me really excited listening to the books. So like, oh, I'm going to have to listen to this again, you know, because there are such really good pointers. And I mean, even the stuff that you discuss about, you know, drawing analogies to, you know, tort law and things like that, and just framing things when we talk about punishment and, and it's about intent, you know, rather than outcome. And all these sort of things are, it's a really rich way of, discussing these very important issues but actually exploring them with your children and both of you are learning at the same time yeah well that's a great that's a great summary of the book yeah thank you but that's exactly how i took it and and that's why i'm really excited to 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 share the book with others so if if people haven't you know seen a copy of nasty brutish and short yet they need to get on it and oh actually just one quick one why did you call it nasty, brutish, and short? <laughs> yeah, so I'm glad I'm glad you asked because people are sometimes perplexed by the title. So um, the title comes from a famous phrase from the English philosopher Thomas Hobbes, who wondered what would life be like without any government at all, and he said it would be solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And that's a phrase that figures a lot in my teaching. And then I had kids and they did things like take revenge when somebody called them a floofer doofer. And so one day I was just thinking, oh, my, my kids are also nasty, brutish and short. <laughs> um, and uh, so that was the origin of the phrase. I mean, I, I always hasten to say, like, I, like, my kids are also cute and kind. And we're really lucky on that front. They're uncommonly cute and kind. But even they would acknowledge that that as kids. Uh, they can be nasty, brutish, and and short. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and and I suppose the a, a war of every man against every man, uh, as you put it, is an apt description of what a house full of kids is like. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. No. I mean, you get a whole different perspective on why some kind of government might be necessary when you're when you're living with with little people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Scott, this has been. A real blast. I really enjoyed speaking with you to this morning, this evening. And um, yeah, thanks so much for pouring your heart and soul into this book because you've just done a fantastic job. And I think it's a really important book for, for parents to get a handle on. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, it's super cool to get to, uh, to, to reach out to an audience of dads, uh, which is, uh, you know, a, a group that can be hard to find, but I'm really glad to connect with. Well, thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about Scott and his book, Nasty, Brutish and Short, head on over to thedadmindset.com and I'll put all the links in the show notes. If you'd like to be updated when the next episode is released, make sure to subscribe to the newsletter on the Dad Mindset website. I send out a weekly highlight of conversations as well as links to other interesting topics I've found that I think you'll enjoy. Have a great week. Thanks for the sport and enjoy your caffeinated beverage. <laughs>